why is this here? What does this have to do with me and Jesus? Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. We're going to read verse 18 through verse 29 of Genesis chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And that is the end of Genesis 9. Why is it there? You know, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, the way that you can figure out the point of the passage is by bringing a metaphorical microscope. And you kind of zero in, and you zero in, and you focus in, and you, you, you look closer and closer and deeper and deeper. And the more closely and the more deeply you look, the, the meaning of the passage, the significance of the passage becomes clear. Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, and you do that, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, what you come up with is Noah got drunk and laid out naked in his tent. Why? When you come across a passage like that, what you have to do is, rather than zeroing in deeper and deeper, you actually have to zoom out. And not just put down the microscope, you actually have to get in a metaphorical hot air balloon and fly up so that you can see the entire forest. And in seeing the entire forest, I think the main point becomes clear. Now, before we can get there, though, we kind of have to explain what's going on here. This is after the flood. God had sent a, a global flood on the earth to destroy the world because of its wickedness. And he had saved Noah and his family through that flood. Noah had only three sons, as far as we know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those three sons had each married, and so what you end up with on, on the ark is eight individuals. Noah and his three sons, that's four men, and then Noah's wife and his sons, three wives, and that's four women. So you have eight individuals. All of the humans in the entire history of the world after the flood are descended from Noah through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll talk about that more when we get to Genesis chapter 10. But after the flood, God had given to Noah this great promise. He said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the desires of man's heart are only evil continually from his youth up. So God said, I'm going to give you the covenant of the rainbow. I'm never again going to flood the entire earth with water and destroy everybody because of their sin. Instead, I'm going to hold all of it together and sustain it so that I can work out my plan of redemption. That's the point of the covenant of the rainbow. Sometime after that, at least three years after that, because that's how long it takes 
uh, at a minimum for vines to germinate and then grow and then produce fruit. As far as, it, okay, Alan's giving me the nod. He, he, knows, he knows fruit, so that's, that's good. At least three years. Now, I've heard that to get good wine, you have to wait at least five years to get the level of great production that you need to make good wine. So this is at least three to five years after the flood, though it may have been longer. Noah decides that he wants a vineyard. Not because he thinks vineyards are pretty, but because Noah desires the fruits of the vineyard, not just the grapes that grow, but the product of the crushed grape and then the fermentation and then the the wine that he can drink. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. Now, fermentation probably is not new after the flood. There's, There's no reason to think that Noah didn't know what he was doing in planting the vineyard, growing the grapes, and then making wine. This would have required a lot of work. He had to clear the ground. He had to plant the seeds, tend the vines. There's a lot of pruning you have to do uh, for vines, harvesting the grapes, juicing the grapes, and then fermenting the wine, none of which is sinful, by the way. Psalm 104.15, the Lord says, I, the Lord, gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine is not inherently sinful. The sin for Noah came in verse 22. He drank of the wine and became drunk. That's when the sin came in. As soon as Noah became drunk, he had crossed the line into sinfulness. Ephesians 5.18, the Lord says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs has a lot to say about the dangers of drunkenness, especially Proverbs 23. He says, Who has redness of eyes and bruises all over his body? It's the guy who lingers over the wine and looks at the, the glowing, glistening juice and says, Oh, that's tasty stuff. And then he gets up and he staggers off and he looks like a sailor in a storm. He staggers off, falls asleep in a ditch, bonks his head, wakes up and says, oh, I'm awake, time to get more alcohol. Proverbs has a lot to say about the dangers of drunkenness. In this case, Noah's drunkenness exposed him to ridicule. He became drunk, apparently because... He got hot, I guess. He took off all of his clothes and laid out in his tent. By the way, the Bible does not hesitate to share the foibles and faults of its heroes. That's one of the things that tells us that the Bible is true. It doesn't cover over Noah's failures. It doesn't cover over David's failures. It doesn't cover over Moses' failures. It tells the story as they really were. These men were sinners. They were Fallen men, finite men, men who are prone to sin. When God said in Genesis 8, verse, uh, verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, he was talking about Noah as well as every other human being. Noah became drunk of the wine and lay down naked in his tent, and he abased himself before Ham. Ham, the father of Canaan, apparently came into the tent for some reason, maybe to try to find something. Maybe he was like, hey, Dad, where's, where's the wrench? And... Oh, my goodness. And he comes outside and he tells his two brothers. He tells his two brothers, the the implication there is that he told them in a mocking way. Not, Not in the sense of like, hey, dad needs some help. Let's figure out how to help dad. More in the sense of, my goodness, guys, dad has made a total fool of himself. He's totally messed up. You guys should totally check that out. So the first lesson of this passage, the first application of this passage is that wine is a mocker, wine is dangerous. If you choose to imbibe, do so carefully. There's no sin in drinking alcohol. The Bible 
does not condemn drinking alcohol. It does condemn drunkenness. If you choose to imbibe, do so carefully. And remember this as well. Modern alcohol is much more alcoholic than ancient alcohol. You had to be really committed to getting drunk in the ancient world to actually get there. Today, you can get there quite quickly. While it takes maybe two to four 16-ounce 16 16 ounce cans of beer to get you legally drunk, uh, one and a half ounces of vodka will get you there. It doesn't take very much, especially the more powerful the alcohol that you drink. And a side application of that would be not just alcohol, recreational drugs. My friends, recreational drugs are dangerous. They're dangerous. They're not just sinful. They're dangerous. They not only cause you to become inebriated quite quickly, but the short and long-term effects of that use, they can destroy your brain. If you start using marijuana in high school, you will never have complete brain function. Never. It's dangerous. Take a lesson from a recent local tragedy. The Gord shooting happened because an active-duty member of the United States military took a dose of psychedelic mushrooms, thought the world was ending, started hallucinating, grabbed his handgun, and started shooting people. Just, just don't. Just don't. Avoid drunkenness. Avoid drugs. But Ham sinned as well. Noah sinned by becoming drunk, but the focus of the passage is on Ham's sin. Not on Noah's sin primarily. Ham's sin was not sexual, by the way. It was a filial sin. He dishonored his father, reveled in his shame, and sought to expose his failure. Nakedness after the fall is related to shame. In the Garden of Eden, uh, the man and his wife could be naked and not ashamed because there was no sin. There was no reason for them to be ashamed. After the fall, nakedness is tied to shame. And we know that. That's why we have nightmares about showing up at school without our pants. Because nakedness is related to shame. Ham's sin was more than just accidentally seeing Noah naked. There was intentionality in it. He saw it, and then he went out and spread it. He spread the shame of his father. Rather than covering it, he expanded it. And I think there's a lesson here for children. Not just just young children, but grown children as well. Your parents will always fail to some degree. Your parents will always fail to some degree. Sometimes your parents are massive failures. Sometimes they're just kind of normal failures. But your parents will always fail to some degree. Don't rush to expose them, especially if they are sincerely trying. Don't rush to expose that. Certainly don't rejoice when their sin does become exposed, when their shame is revealed. Don't rejoice in that. That's a sad thing. Sin is always sad. When it's necessary to publicly deal with the sin of parents, we must do it carefully, we must do it humbly, and we must do it soberly, especially when we have children of our own. Because we ought to know, even as I am trying to deal with my parents' sin, my children are going to have to deal with my sin someday. And that gives us patience. Shem and Japheth had that mindset. When they learned of what their father had done, they They covered his shame. They took a garment. Notice how the wording is drawn out. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. The author goes out of his way to describe how careful these men were to cover their father's shame. Now, we've seen nakedness and shame together, and the covering of nakedness and shame together. 
We've seen that once before in the book of Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 3. After the man and his wife had sinned, they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. God came into the garden, exposed their sin. When they acknowledged, yes, we have sinned and, and we trust in your promise, the response of the Lord was to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. He fashioned garments of the skin of an animal and clothed them. Shem and Japheth here take on the role of God with their father's sin. They cover the shame. Not in the sense of covering it up. If Noah had done something truly vile, then to cover it up would have been sin itself. Instead, they cover this particular sin, taking on the role of God. There's one more lesson in this. When parents become incapable of caring for themselves, it's our duty to care for them. When they contract Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that, and they become incapable of of caring for their own bodies, it is the duty of their children to care for them. That care can be expressed in many ways. Sometimes it's by the child taking the parent into their own home and caring for them in the home. Sometimes it's by the child helping them get into a home where they can be taken care of 24-7. In that case, it's incumbent on us as children to continue to care for them by being present with them as much as we can and checking in on their care and making sure that it's the same quality of care that they need. Now, the last time I preached this, I preached this about six years ago, and that was my main point because I couldn't figure out what the main point of the passage was. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's about taking care of your parents. We'll, we'll just go with that. <clears throat> this time I knew it was coming. As soon as I started the flood narrative, I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Noah's coming again. And uh, so I started thinking about it like six weeks ago and uh, just racking my brain. And finally this week, I think I, I think I figured it out, what the main point is. Sorry, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about before we get there, though. Why did Noah drink to drunkenness? Was it because he didn't know about alcohol? He didn't know about fermentation? Maybe it was accidental? Maybe Noah just wanted to get drunk. Maybe he just wanted the buzz. Maybe Noah was so affected by what he had seen, by what he had endured. Maybe he was so overwhelmed at being the only old man left in the entire world to whom every single human looks for wisdom and direction. Maybe he was so overwhelmed with that that he just sought escape. Maybe he was just tired and let his guard down. To me, that seems the most likely. But there's a lesson in that too, my friends. Don't let your guard down. Don't. Your heart is so deceitful, it will get you. The New Testament says repeatedly, be vigilant, guard yourself. But to get to the main point of the passage, I think we have to ask this question. Why is Canaan cursed rather than Ham? You would think as Noah wakes up from his drunkenness and finds out what his youngest son has done to him, verse 24 of chapter 9 there, you would think that he would say this, Cursed be Ham, a servant of servants may he be to his brothers. Now the interesting thing is that for several hundred years, that's exactly how uh, a lot of theologians read that passage. 
It says, cursed be Canaan, but what Noah really meant was, cursed be Ham. And the reason he said, cursed be Ham, is because the, the African races are all descended from Ham, and that's what allows us to enslave the African races, because Noah said, they shall be slaves to Ham's brothers. That's called reading into the text. That's called eisegesis, not exegesis. Putting something into the Bible that the Bible does not say. God had already blessed Ham. Noah couldn't undo that. That's option one. Why did God curse Canaan, or why did Noah curse Canaan instead of Ham? Option one. God had already blessed Ham, so Noah couldn't undo that, so he curses the next best thing, Canaan's son. Noah's upset. And, uh, and he wakes up from his wine, he's upset that Ham did this, and so he, he can't curse the guy who did it, so he gets back at Ham by cursing Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Mirroring punishment. Ham's, Ham was Noah's youngest son, he'd sinned against Noah, and so his youngest son is cursed. That assumes that Noah's curse and blessing here are some kind of reward for his son's actions. That the curse is revenge, and the blessing is a transfer of affection to those two alone. I don't think that's the main point. I don't think that's why Canaan is cursed. Remember when Genesis was written, when it was compiled. It's compiled by Moses. Moses is the guy who led Israel out of Egypt, which was a Hamite nation. He leads them, leads them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the land called Canaan. He's leading them to the land called Canaan. Why? Because the land of Canaan is the land God has promised to give to his people. The land of Canaan is filled with people descended from Canaan. That's why it's called the land of Canaan. Canaan at that time was vile. Absolutely vile. My friends, as bad as Pride Month is in the United States of America, Canaan was worse. Far worse. Read Leviticus 18 if you want just a taste of how bad Canaan was at this time. This story here in Genesis 9 helps Israel to understand how far back Canaan's national corruption went. It went all the way back to Ham. But also to understand that Canaan's destruction was prophesied a thousand years before they came in to conquer it. Not just here in Genesis 9, but in Genesis 15. After the Lord has made the covenant with Abraham and Abraham fell asleep and everything and he wakes up and God says, your children are going to be slaves. They're going to be wanderers and pilgrims in a foreign nation for 400 years. Then they're going to come back out and take this land that I told you I would give to you. They're going to take it, but they're not going to take it for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites are Canaanites. And so I think the way that we read this passage is not that Ham's sin was the reason for this prophecy, but that Ham's sin was the occasion for the prophecy. Noah does not wake up in a bad mood out to get his youngest son. Instead, you can think of it like this. Noah shakes off the influence of the alcohol and comes under the influence of the Holy Spirit and prophesies about the history of his descendants. And this isn't the first time this happens, nor is it the last. In the book of Genesis, this happens one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in the book of Genesis. That a father, a grandfather, a patriarch in some way sits down with his descendants and explains to them, this is what's going to happen after I die. This is what's going to happen to all of you. 
It's not revenge magic. The curse of Canaan is not Noah giving some kind of hex to his son. This is prophecy. Canaan's triple curse is a concise summary of the ancient history of the land of Canaan. Verse 25, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Who are Canaan's brothers? Well, that would be the other sons of Ham. You know, the first nations to conquer Canaan were Hamite nations, Egypt and the Hittites. After the Hamites conquered and dominated Canaan, then it was the turn of the Shemites. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. His, they're referring to Shem, not to God. After the Hamites conquered Canaan, then it was the Shemites' turn. Israel, and then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia. After the Hamites conquer Canaan, then it's the Japhethites' turn. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Greece and Rome are both Japhethite nations. So you have this threefold summary of the history of Canaan. First, they're slaves to their own relatives, then they're slaves to Shem's descendants, then they're slaves to Japheth's descendants. It's a history, a concise history of the Middle East. And there's a few things that we need to keep in mind about this curse as we think about it. It's very easy to read this and think, my goodness, poor Canaan. What did he do? At this stage, he could have been just a baby. At most, maybe a young boy, maybe in his teens, but certainly not an old man. Poor Canaan. Well, a few things to keep in mind here. First, it's a curse of Canaan, not of Ham. Canaan is the father of all of the peoples of Canaan, which became the land of giants. Remember in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, the Israelite spies come back and they say, we saw Nephilim in the land of Canaan. Nephilim, that sounds familiar, right? That's Genesis 6. That's why God sent the flood in the first place. Because humanity had allied with demons. Canaan became a nation, a people group that was allied with demons. It's not the boy Canaan who is cursed. It's the nation that descended from him. Genesis 14, Deuteronomy 2, Deuteronomy 3 describes all of these different tribes that live in the land of Canaan, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Amorites. All of those are giant tribes. The sons of Anak as well. In fact, there's ancient Egyptian texts that mention the warfare that the Egyptians had with the Canaanites, and they talk about the Shasu, these warriors that they would meet in the land of Canaan. The Shasu were between seven and nine feet tall, according to ancient Egypt. Canaan apparently became uniquely allied with the forces of Satan as they expanded through their land. In a sense, the land of Canaan became a microcosm of the world as it was before the flood. A land filled with violence, child sacrifice, human sacrifice, murder, destruction, intertribal warfare, all of those things were there. Sexual uh, abominations and, and sins. Leviticus 18 says that Canaan's abominable sexual habits caused the land itself to vomit them out. That sounds a lot like the flood. The earth kind of just eventually had enough, and the fountains of the great deep were like, we're done. And they just broke because they couldn't take it anymore. See, the point is, Canaan's descendants were especially of the serpent's seed. And so they are cursed. But notice this as well. It is a curse of Canaan, not a curse of Canaanites. Any Canaanite could escape the curse by repenting and believing. Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, the priest of God who lived in Salem, he was a Canaanite, but he truly believed in God. Rahab, 
Gibeon, the entire city that was saved from destruction because they recognized the supremacy of Israel's God. Any Canaanite could escape the curse by repenting and believing. On the other hand, any Japhethite or Shemite or Hamite could forfeit blessing by their stubborn unrepentance. And you see an example of that in the book of Joshua. The same time that Rahab is saved from the destruction of the Canaanite city, Achan is included in the destruction of the Canaanite city. Why? Because Rahab believed in Israel's God and Achan rejected Israel's God. So the Canaanite is treated as an Israelite and the Israelite as a Canaanite. Participation in the curse is based on common descent, not from Canaan, but from Adam. Every sinner is under God's curse. God's curse, by the way, is not a hex, as if God is saying, bad luck on you, bad luck on Canaan. God's curse is his judicial sentence against unrepentant sinners. Canaan's descendants are cursed because they sin not because they're genetically related to Ham. And if Israel sinned like the Canaanites, they would be treated like the Canaanites. Notice this too. It's a curse that took a long time to take effect. Genesis 15, again, God says 400 years to fill up that measure. But not only that, there's this curse of Canaan, this blessing of Shem and Japheth, but then in Genesis 12, the curse of Canaan is reversed. The Lord God said to Abram, go out from your country. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth includes Canaan. In fact, in Isaiah 19, verse 18, there's this fascinating statement. In the days when Christ rules on the earth, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of the Canaanites. I don't know what that means. Whether it's especially significant to this passage or not, I don't know, but that's fascinating to me. So as we zoom out, the big picture meaning of this is that God has a plan to undo the wickedness of sinners. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But he doesn't stop there. In Genesis 3, you get curse, curse, curse. Cursed be the serpent. The woman gets pain in childbirth. Cursed be the ground because of man's sin. There's no blessing in Genesis 3. There's the promise of blessing, but there's no blessing. In Genesis 9, you get a curse, but then you get a blessing after the curse, that is a sign. God is doing something here. He's drawing humanity through the curse toward blessing. Cursed be Canaan. Blessed. And notice what he says. Not blessed be Shem. Blessed be Yahweh. The God of Shem. And let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. See, here's the surprise in Genesis 9. The surprise is not cursed be Canaan. The surprise is blessed be Shem and blessed be Japheth. That's the surprise. That these sinners get mercy. Japheth, by the way, notice this, is blessed because he dwells in the tents of Shem. That's how the blessing comes. Genesis 9 then continues this theme of conflict that we saw in Genesis 3, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Canaan is of the seed of the woman. Shem is the one through whom the seed of the woman continues. Did I say 
Canaan is seed of the woman. Canaan is seed of the serpent. Shem is the one through whom the woman's seed continues. We see that in Genesis 12, Genesis 11 and 12. The story is not primarily about Noah getting drunk and taking his clothes off. That story is the introduction to the main point, which is the blessing. The blessing is not the moral to the story. It's the point. The story is what gets you there. Why is the world the way that it is? Why is Israel about to conquer Canaan with God's blessing? It goes back all the way to here because of this promise of God, this prophecy from the Lord of how the world history will play out. God's plan is not just to set Israel apart, and that's also something that we learn from this. God is writing this for the nation of Israel. They're about to conquer Canaan. God tells them, I have a plan to bless Hamites. How do we know that? Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. His brothers are Hamites. That's an implicit blessing of Ham and his descendants. Then you have the explicit blessing, the God of Shem, let Canaan be a servant. Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Explicit blessings. God's plan for Israel is that Israel would be the conduit through which his blessings would flow to the entire world, not that Israel would be their own private conduit, you know, private blessing cul-de-sac, you could say. The curse and the blessing encapsulate the plan of redemption. God is planning to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Hamites, Japhethites, and Shemites. Lamech had hoped that Noah would bring relief, but Noah can't because he's a sinner too. Noah's nakedness was exposed. That brought shame because sin makes us ashamed of nakedness because nakedness is a symbol of our exposure before God. Hebrews 4.13, we are all naked and laid bare before the one with whom we have to deal. Noah's nakedness is covered by Shem. Shem can't cover your nakedness. He can't cover my nakedness. Not in the presence of God. So we need somebody better than Shem who can cover our shame. And that is Shem's son, Jesus. In whom people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including Canaan, are blessed and brought into everlasting salvation. Now, I had to cut like a whole bunch of stuff because we have a baptism in just a minute. But the main point... And I want you to know this because, because Genesis 9 matters. It's not just one of those weird stories that you read in the Bible and then you can move on and be like, well, that was weird. Genesis 9 matters because Genesis 9 is a summary of God's plan to redeem the world. My friend, you're part of this. Most of us in this room, as far as I know, are descendants of Japheth. How do you get into the blessing if you're a descendant of Japheth? Japheth and his nations, Genesis 10 tells us, they were all pagans. Same with Shem's descendants, except for one line. All of Shem's descendants were pagans. Same with Ham's descendants, all pagans. How do you get into the blessing? You have to get into Shem's tent. How do you get there? Well, there's only one way. Through Christ. To receive the blessing, you must receive Christ. And if you've not received Christ, receive him. He is willing to take away your shame. He is willing to cover it, to take away the consequences of your sin and cover them forever. He's willing to save you and forgive you 
So receive him. For those of us who are already in Christ, just rejoice. God did not make up the plan to save you minutes before you prayed to ask Jesus to save you. It's not like God was up there in heaven. You're like, oh, another one's getting ready. Um, better, hmm, better figure this out real quick. His plan was set in stone before he created the world. And he's ta- told us all along, signposts along the way, my plan is to save sinners who believe. He says it in Genesis 3, says it in Genesis 9, says it in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, Genesis 18, Genesis 20. All the way through the Bible, he gives us these signposts. I'm willing to save those who believe. My friend, if you believe, he saved you. Part of his plan all along. You're safe if you're in Christ. So rejoice. Now I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to go to our baptisms. So let's pray If we could have the volunteer who's going to help the kids get ready downstairs, if you could go down and help them prep for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who plans, that nothing in history comes as a surprise to you, but that you are always working out your will, always working out your plan for our good and for your glory. Our Father, we pray that you would strengthen us now, that we would rejoice in the goodness of your plan, that we would rejoice in Christ's mercy to us. And Father, we pray for those who are about to be baptized. May you encourage them and encourage us as we celebrate with them their decision to follow Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.